Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hi, it's Allison, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to have another double guest interview today. I'm going to introduce you to Shane Fuller and Nikki Pauli. First of all, you need to know that they are partners, but not as in marriage partners, couple partners. <laughs> no, they, no, 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 not to be confused. Hey, like it would be the worst thing I of mean, all time. Not the, Definitely not. Not the worst. No way. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they both do have partners and they both have four children. Um, and in their conversations about uh parenting, they both, both personally and professionally said that they had this great realization that, you know, parents are desperate to do their best by their kids. We're all so well-intentioned, but we just bump into those moments in life and situations that, that we're scared, we're caught off guard, we don't know how to handle what's coming our way. And because they themselves and realize that many parents like them want to flourish, they have worked together to create this really lovely set of parenting classes at preparentingparents.com, which I will put in the show notes. And this is this environment of helpful, practical, shame-free, great parenting information to get you through those sticky challenges. And so welcome to the podcast, you two. Thank you, Allison. We are pumped to be here today. So we, we've we just come off of being away at a conference. Nikki was presenting at NASAP, which is the North American Association of Adlerian Psychology, our national organization. And she was presenting on play therapy for teens and parents. So I just want people to know that play therapy is not just for little people. It's a lifelong <laughs> endeavor. Play is for everybody. I work. went... Yeah, and I went to the session, and it was fantastic. And, and, and at the same conference, we had this keynote speaker, Amna Nawaz, who is the PBS NewsHour correspondent. And she was always going to be our keynote speaker, but she was on the ground reporting from Uvalde, am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. Uvalde, Texas, right after the mass shootings. And so even though you and I had booked this recording for the podcast and I was going to pick your brain about emotional regulation and some other things, so we're going to have you on a second time. I was like, Irk, put on the brakes. I said, no, 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 no. We need to talk to these two experts about how we talk to kids about grief, death, shock, all of those things you know, in the, some people would have to talk about the mass shooting, but I think just grief and trauma and tough news is something that every, is one of those topics that you must talk about in your parenting class. These, these conversations we were unprepared for that took us out at the knees. No one woke up the morning of thinking they were going to have to talk to their kids about a mass shooting. Right. So, so that's what I, I, so thank you for being spontaneous and allowing me to like change the conversation, but I just felt that this is what parents might be needing right now. Yeah, that's such a good point, too, because don't you think 
there's times, not very many, but there are times where we can anticipate grief coming mm-hmm. into our lives. You know, grandma's sick mm-hmm. or <laughs> the dog's getting older, that kind of thing. But most of the time, when we're talking to our kids about anything related to grief or even trauma, mm-hmm. it's it almost necessarily is reactive. Right. And so part of what we like talking about is like for parents, how do we get you to a place where you can be proactive in some senses? Mm-hmm. And then also when you do have to react, how do you do it in a way where you don't, <laughs> where you don't freak out or uh, completely ignore it or out of your own sort of discomfort? not have conversations that man five years later you're going to really wish you were having right well and as parents weren't we all reacting after that shooting as well exactly right? yeah like yeah all nervous all on edge um and i think allison that's the huge part is the first thing parents have to do because it's this parallel process of trauma and and grief right alongside our children often right and so to figure out how to regulate ourselves so that we're not projecting our grown-up feelings and our grown-up concerns onto our children, right? It seems like parents uh, either dismiss their children's experience, right? Pretend like it didn't happen or they won't know, or if we just shelter them from this, somehow no one at school will ever say anything that upsets them, right? or they project their own stuff on their kid. It seems to be in a way that says like, here, carry all my rocks too. (laughs) (laughs) You obviously aren't prepared or ready to carry. Yeah, right. totally. Totally. And, and if every parent who's listening just re, rethinks back through mm-hmm. some situations, they probably see some ways that they've done that. Because we've done it, too. How many times? Never. I'm perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> right. Well, and I think, you know, so much of it is, is taking a breath and then letting your kid lead you. Right. So a great a great question after something like this horrible shooting to your kid, whether they're five or 15 is tell me what you know. Yeah. Tell me what you heard. Where are you at in this? Yeah, because maybe it'd be helpful to share. So our, my children, our oldest is a, was a first grader this year. Mm-hmm. So during that week, um, my wife and I kind of talked. She's our oldest. She's prone to some separation anxiety. She can get nervous about certain things that kind of like become bigger in her mind than maybe mm-hmm. they need to be. So we made the decision together that we weren't going to, proactively talk to her about it. Mm-hmm. So every day that week for probably the next, I don't know, four school days, maybe we would just ask, like, did you hear about anything sad at school today? Did you hear anything about at school today that scared you? Did you hear anything about something that happened at a different school that would be scary? Mm-hmm. And we asked her and uh, she each day said like, no, she hadn't heard. So for us, that felt like the mm-hmm the best way to handle it because we were paying attention to our daughter and her needs and where she was at developmentally, but your kids are older than mine. So Mm -hmm. what did you guys do that week? So my oldest Allison is 13 and then 11, nine and seven. And so of course the 13 year old knew so much, right. Um, And had a couple questions, but he actually seemed to be doing okay with that discussed it a bit with our 11 year old, but down to our seven year old who actually seemed to be bothered by it until she asked one question. And her question was, well, uh, how far away is that from here? Hmm. So I gave her, you know, an amount of hours and she goes, oh, okay. And then was fine. That was all she needed to feel safe and secure. Why go any, like any more into it? Why go any farther than that? Right. Which is what I mean by like letting your kids lead you. Yeah. And you've got to be so attuned as a parent to to know your 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 kids are signaling you just needed to, just needed to qualify that don't right. you know right all the time that that attunement piece that that big word that you just said is absolutely everything as a parent right because trauma um, can the same trauma can affect seven people different right yes to one person it's a huge deal to the next person didn't affect them at all. I tell this great story of my daughter. I was walking my two daughters at the time. I think they were like grade two, grade three-ish, about that age. And we're walking to school and we come across this woman who's on the lawn and she's violently being ill, throwing up, throwing up. Her eyes are bloodshot from the pressure of the throwing up or whatever. And uh, I run to the rescue or whatever. And and it turns out she didn't speak any English, but the, the, I went and got the, the daughter who lived in the house next door because she was sort of pointing frantically. Anyways, without going into the details, 
One of my daughters who witnessed this situation said, aren't we good heroes? Wasn't it great that we were walking by and we could be helpers? And my other daughter started panic attacks because at any moment you could be walking along and the world could fall apart and your mom's going to go into a house and you're going to be the oldest, most competent person on the scene. And this subjectivity of how her world order changed by that one event, one perceived it one way, one perceived it another way. It's so subjective that I couldn't change my... I would have done exactly the same parenting thing. I didn't go about trying to start my daughter on a life of anxiety. I still would have helped the lady. I still would have gone into the house. We can't beat ourselves up as parents for the things that we do. This is the creativity of the child. Well, and, um, you know, what we know about kids, and I learned this from uh, Terry Cotman, who developed Adlerian Play Therapy. Uh, she always says kids are great observers, right? They really are. They're hypervigilant about taking in all the information. But where they get stuck is the interpretation part, and they're pretty horrible at that, right? And a lot of times what they do is they make it egocentric. Like, it's all about me because that's what kids do, right? So your daughter there, right? Like, same information. One said, I'm great. I'm so helpful. And the other one said, this is horrible for me. The world is not safe for me, right? All perceived different, all based off how, like, the story that we tell ourselves about how we fit in and belong to what's going on. Which, so their narrative then Mm -hmm. starts to get formed. You know, what's the narrative? What, who are the characters? What role does my Mm -hmm. character play? And one of the reasons why it's so important to be attuned to each of our kids is because until you hear them saying what the narrative is in their mind, Mm -hmm. you don't really know. And it's so easy to assume, right? Right, Allison, like the story you just shared of the two daughters. There's, if you didn't know and they weren't saying it out loud, you'd probably think they were both handling it like your oldest. (laughs) And then when you start to find out, oh my gosh, they see themselves in such a different way through this story. So for instance, like one of the ones that I have to do often is one of my things I hear from my kids is, and I think this happens in a lot of kids' lives, um, like dad's upset, he's impatient, he raises his voice and their narrative is if they just hadn't, you know, blank, pressed the button on the door of the van too many times, then dad wouldn't have had to get upset. And so what I have to do, I think, Allison, Nikki, you helped me with this. I sort of stop in the moment and I apologize. And then I have to almost tell them the true narrative that I want them to actually have about the event that took place. So uh, I almost interpret it for them. So I say, no, you're not the reason I yelled. I yelled because I was impatient. I was upset and I was feeling out of control. And no matter how you were behaving, I don't want to talk to you like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do my best not to next time, but I can't have you thinking <laughs> that that was your fault because it wasn't, that's daddy's mm-hmm. fault. So please forgive me. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do. But I mean, yeah, in these grief trauma situations, how much more, you know, if we just hadn't been walking to school, maybe she hadn't, she wouldn't have been throwing up that <laughs> somehow, some way it's my fault that the dog passed away or the teacher got sick or there was a shooting in Texas. Mm-hmm. Well, cause kids don't get that causation correlation relationship. Right. So they draw these lines. You're exactly right. Because we were walking to school, this happened or because I lost snacks and treats, grandma died. Right. Those two things have nothing to do with each other, except that they happen around the same time. So that, so that's again, this, the immaturity of the child's mind. And you say, even though we need to be attuned with our kids, there is a developmental piece to all of this, right? Like there's, we, we, we do as parents have a bit of an obligation to get a little bit up to speed on some of that. Cause I find it so interesting at a, at a pediatrician's office, you know how they'll have like all the milestones. They should say so many words and roll over and whatever. And like, and then it just stops Like it just stops and we're never really invited to take that developmental conversation outside of the pediatrician's office. And so, you know. Well, and it stops about what? Like fourth grade preschool as if kids don't develop past that. The Dougie Center, Allison, I don't know if you've ever seen this, has unbelievable developmental resources regarding grief. And it breaks it down like age two to four. This is what kids are thinking and these are what their symptoms look like and how a parent can be helpful. And then, you know, it goes down, like, I think it's like two to four, five to eight, eight to 13. But what's so interesting is when parents bring kids to our office dealing with trauma or grief, the parents are so stuck on 
a symptom that is developmentally appropriate. Let's so, just give me some examples of symptoms that we might see. Well, you know, a seven-year-old who is just told that um, a love, like a, a classmate has died might have both really sad feelings for a moment and also be excited because you're having ice cream after dinner. That they, these feelings can coexist in a child, right? Or that a, that a kid that age cannot stay in deep sadness very long. So parents would be like, there's something wrong with them. When we told him this happened, he asked to go ride his bike. Right. You know, we, we think he doesn't have any feelings, but really kids can't stay in deep, heavy sadness very long. Yeah. Yeah. And then even for like younger kids, right. Three or four year olds, maybe there's going to be a, uh, a way they will talk and process out loud about grief. That seems, how would we put it? It seems, uh, not as socially appropriate <laughs> that was a nice as, as the way uh, we kind of choose to in our you know modern day world where we talk kind of in reverence or respectfully or we kind of hush hush it whereas you know two to four ish they're going to talk about it like so matter of factly to everyone to everyone they'll say it with a smile on their face right. yeah they'll tell everyone in preschool six times that uh my dad died did you know my dad died my dad dog died like my dog you know they'll they'll repeat it that's how they process information they'll play it out their play will look scary to adults yeah so talk about so because i would recommend play therapy for for kids again from a developmental point of view I do a lot of talk therapy and that's really great if you've got somebody who's like, you know, eight plus and verbal or whatever. And as we started the conversation, like play is for everybody, but it's particularly good for younger kids and in a nonverbal way. So can you say, help explain to parents who don't really know what play therapy is, first of all, and then how it would be a, a useful intervention when we're talking about processing grief? Yeah, well, play is a child's natural language. Um, so I think if we as adults, whether we are the therapist or the parent, if we want to communicate with the kid and um, learn about how they are feeling, perceiving, thinking, then we enter their language, right? Which is play. Um, so the goal of play therapy really is to use play not to trick kids into talking, which is, I think, what a lot of parents like, want it like to a, be like a distraction almost right. is that here let's yeah. play this game tell me all the things <laughs> right. but they don't do that they show us in the play and so um they work out problem solving they work out um trauma they work out grief through their play and and oftentimes it might be repetitive or it might be confusing to adults um actually i think we can teach parents some very simple play therapy skills um, so the first one would be like tracking, which is just saying what your kid is doing. Your kid will feel so loved, mm. so seen if you sit on the floor and track what they're doing. Yes, oh, you're literally do it. Like I like because yeah. I, I you and I know what tracking is, but I'm not sure someone listening is going to go. What do you mean track? I don't know what you mean. But everyone can do it. But just literally give a demonstration of it. So Allison, you are moving that truck from there to there. Oh, now it's going down. Oh, and it stopped and it looks like it's talking to that other bulldozer or whatever. Um, and now, oh, that one's hitting that one. Oh, it seems like, and then we can add a feeling to it, getting crazy. You know, it looks like he might be angry. Just, just tracking what they're doing, just, just describing the movements of the toy, of the kid with their toy. And then you can add maybe taking a guess about the feelings, which is just reflecting feelings. And then this one's anyone can do this next one. Just restating content. So you're simply saying what your kid just said, paraphrasing it. There are so many parents, myself included, I just kind of um, spit in my own soup here, um, who don't spend enough time simply connecting with their kid through play, which really... I mean, getting your kid to a play therapist is super important, but let's be honest, what really needs to happen is the play therapist needs to work with the parents and the parents need to connect with the kid through what's meaningful to the kid, which is play. And so since we're getting really practical for parents, you just described play that I would say like I do with like my three-year-old. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening and you have kids that are five, seven, ten and they're not playing with trucks anymore, how are some ways that 
you have noticed like play functionally takes place in the lives of kids who are maybe a little developmentally ahead of like a three-year-old. Right. So can you still play with your nine-year-old, with your 13-year-old, with your 17-year-old is what I hear you saying. Is that your question? Yeah. And in what ways does it play itself out? Because again, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking like parents of kids those ages are like, well, my kid likes to (laughs) jump on the trampoline. They like to ride their bike and they like to play video games, Mm -hmm. you know? Right. Mostly video games. Mostly (laughs) one before that's new that's new like video games so let's just talk about video games um what if allison gardening was the most important thing to do to you and you brought that up to shane and i today and we said allison we're not talking about gardening i've had enough of gardening we're not talking about that at the dinner table this is ridiculous how would you feel yeah like you've dismissed me and you don't know me and my things that are important to me aren't important to you i'd feel really minimized Right. Which is what 97% of parents do about video games, myself included. Really. I was so annoyed with the talk about video games, but you can't connect with your kid if you don't care about what's meaningful to them. Right. And, and really that is teaching your kids social interest to care about what they care about. So ask questions about video game. Here's your crazy idea. Go sit by your kid when they're playing video games, not all 10 hours, but just like (laughs) sit down and care and ask them to teach you, go on the bike rides together, care about what they care about. We really know that families can weather super hard things, super traumatic things. I mean, horrific loss. If they have this positive bank of memories and experiences to pull back from. So making deposits in that family bike ride, Mm. super Mario Kart, which I'm awesome at, by the way. Um, and that's my favorite too. That's absolute. I told when we got into gaming, I like not two controls. There's got to be a controller for everyone in the family. You don't have to invite me to every game, but I don't want it to be that I'm blocked out because I don't have a controller. Yeah. We just had this discussion at my house and I just purchased, uh, we have a total of four now. So this is a big deal in our house right now too, Allison. You and what I also hear you saying that other maybe parents are going to be benefited by is Yeah. Uh, Allison, you said it too. Adults, even adults need to and do play. And traditionally, the language that I think we often use around play is like playtime. And it's for, again, like preschool age children, Mm -hmm. like let's go have Mm playtime. What I hear you describing is literally (laughs) doing activities, partaking in life together and wall you partake in life together doing anything that you can verbally, non-verbally to communicate. I'm here with you. You matter to me. Mm -hmm. And because we're doing this together, this is meaningful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that how you would describe maybe play in a broader sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And using these same skills um, with your kid, no matter what the age, this is the feeling I hear you saying, um, you know, I noticed that when in this part of the video game, I'm just thinking of my JJ, uh, who's nine, stands up and gets like, you seem really excited. It seems like you're really into this. Well, oh, you're bouncing up and down on the couch. Right. right. But it lets them know you're with them and that they matter. Um, Adler said that, um, you know, empathy is seeing with a person's eyes, hearing with their ears and only then feeling with their heart which is what as parents we want to do and what we do through connecting with our kids through play. And I think even more so with, I'm thinking about the, with the teenagers too, right? I, I mean, I got divorced when my kids were starting high school. So their dad was, you know, uh, trying to stay connected and an engaged father. Um, but we were in different towns and they only saw them every other weekend. And what, what are you going to call it? Te- First of all, they don't pick up the phone, but whatever. What right. is it? How was school? fine, whatever. They went on, they started gaming immediately. And so every day they were playing these online games together. These, you know, it, uh, it kept them connected. And so sitting down and playing is not like, have you done your homework? Who's that friend? Have you started vaping? Like we get into all this managerial, (laughs) managerial stuff and we don't actually spend a lot of time being, be, being with, we're, we're doing parenting instead of being with our, our teens. So I think play is a great way to connect and drop all that other agenda. 
Well, and if you think about, I don't know how many parents have brought a teen kid in and oftentimes it's a, uh, um, their teen daughter and it's a dad and she's not listening in defiance and doing what she wants. And as you sit and listen, they missed the boat in some previous stages because you really earn the right to parent in the next stage. You know, and that, that managerial stuff, the discipline stuff doesn't work. No amount of discipline works if a child doesn't feel connected to you, right? And it turns out they don't feel connected when you drag them to the grocery store or, uh, you know, take them to things that are important to you. It's crazy. You were talking about the developmental pieces. So if we have teenagers that heard this news, <laughs> it's going to land very differently because they're, they're complex thinkers now. They're, they are more likely to be like us. And they've, you know, and they've seen the, uh, the shootings in Lakefield and like they know that this has been like an ongoing problem and their sense of security might be very different or the injustice or the powerlessness. Or, or what, what are signs for parents to look at where they kind of do need to think about, you know, if their kid's doing okay? What's develop, when is it developmentally normal grief? And when is it like my kid really does need to speak to someone? Mm-hmm. Well, I think first and foremost, if your child ever asks to speak to someone, do not hesitate. Mental health awareness mm-hmm. is increasing. And I'm getting a lot more teens who have asked um, to go to speak to someone. Um, and oftentimes as parents, we drag our feet, right? I think part of us is scared about what they're going to say about us. Um, which I also tell parents, I don't believe half the stuff their kids say, as long as they do the same for me, right? Like, <laughs> let's go both ways here. Yeah, that's so good. Um, but also, if your kid starts isolating mm-hmm. more, withdrawing, um, I think also, Allison, this is a huge time to, no matter what your kid's age is, and especially as they get older and start um, thinking independently, to really work on your family values. Yeah. And instilling um, your family values. This is like obviously horrible, right? A mass shooting, horrible. And there's an opportunity to really talk about some deeper um, things with your child, right? Some uh, more of the existential questions, um, but really helping your child navigate those deep questions like, why does this happen? And you don't have to have the answers, for goodness sakes, but to sit with your child and Tell them, this is what our family has believed about this. This is what our family thinks about this. Um, I think a lot of parents don't grab these hard opportunities because we're so busy sheltering, right? Like we, we need to stop sheltering and help our kids learn to be more resilient by teaching them uh, value system, by teaching them courage, right? Courage to deal with the hard things. And by courage, I just mean being scared and doing it in. Right. Yeah, and uh, for teens in the grief stage, but this probably works in other parts of their life too, when you can uh, get them talking about, quote unquote, how their friends (laughs) are thinking or feeling right now, or quote unquote, how their teachers or the people they're following on social media are thinking and feeling right now, it can be so helpful because oftentimes they're gonna, they also are beings with social interests So they're also trying to consider what are the groups that I'm a part of and how are they collectively handling this? So if their friend group is all right, maybe even a little dramatically acting one specific way or trying to hold on to a feeling of sadness or anger for maybe longer than they would if they were doing this individually or a part of a different group. If you can figure that stuff out, it can help with Mm-hmm. kind of processing with your teen too. And then we've said to parents before, uh, grief never looks the same for anyone. There's not a playbook. Uh, almost everyone I talk to who is in some sort of grief stage, what they say to me, whether they say it explicitly or not, is I don't know if I'm grieving right. Mm-hmm. So there's always a conversation about there's not a right way to do it. So you have to allow your children and teens permission to not quote unquote grieve right mm-hmm. either. We do say to parents though, if after about six months, still feels like their grief is impeding mm-hmm. that daily functioning, the daily functioning, yeah. or it's stopping them from living the life that they maybe would have been living six months earlier, that would be a great time for a parent to initiate a conversation with their teen mm-hmm. about talking to someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I think it's so important that you just said there that we got, we kind of got really wrapped up in uh, Kubler-Ross's stages of grief and we thought everyone would do them for a certain amount of time in a certain order. And we got this rubric that really, I think, was great research at the time because we didn't know anything about grief. So thank right. you for that. But then we got locked into it and we, that paradigm is, is inaccurate and that we now know that we don't necessarily go through all those stages. Some people, and we don't do them in certain orders and we do them at different different times. And it doesn't mean that if you're not still sad about grandma's passing, that you didn't love her or that you are somehow feeling badly that everybody else in the family is still so sad and you're not. And there's no guilt or shame to that. Your process was different than other people's. And and we need to embrace that. The kids aren't callous or uncaring or stuck and and whatever. Um, They could still be crying about the dog and you're not. And that's that is just fine. Right. Yeah. And I, I've been a part of so many funerals. And one of the things I say to families more than anything else is, hey, uh, none of us want to be here. We'd all rather be a bunch of other places. As we go through this funeral together, I need you to do two things. I need you to give permission to yourself to feel the things that you're feeling mm-hmm. and not feeling. And I need you to give everyone else in the room permission to be on their own journey with that too. Mm -hmm. So as we eat lunch, after we come back from going to the graveside and that table over there is laughing and telling stories about like aunt Cindy and your table is crying and telling stories about her. Do not look at the other table and think, of course they're handling it that way. Let everybody else, including yourself be in the journey where you're at. And, and sometimes for parents, I don't know why, But when our kids are in a different spot in the journey or handling it differently than we are, it makes us feel really uncomfortable about either how we're doing or it makes us, for some reason, worried about how our kids are doing because we think they should be handling it just like us. And part of it, I think, is the same. It's like the social interest thing. If the adults around me are handling it like I am, then, okay, I feel secure. I must be doing it right And when our kids are handling it different, it kind of gives us the same feeling like, oh, no, am I handling it wrong? And then out of our discomfort or our confusion or our questioning, we project onto our kids that they need to be doing the same or we need to stop them from doing what they're doing so that I can feel more comfortable, which is one of the scariest things about parenting, isn't it? We tell parents all the time in any topic of life, you have to choose your child's good over your own discomfort. Just because you don't feel comfortable having that conversation or bringing that topic up or leaning into this Mm -hmm. problem or situation with your child, if it's the best thing for them, you have to do it. You have to do it. Mm -hmm. Choose their good over your own discomfort. And I think grief falls really squarely Mm -hmm. into that paradigm. Mm -hmm. So how does a parent know? You know, you just brought up the funerals and I was thinking like a lot of parents ask the question, I don't know, should I take my kid to the hospital to see grandma when she doesn't have her dentures in and and she's like lost 80 pounds and she doesn't look like herself? Do do, do the kids need to go say goodbye or is that bad? Or do they go to the funeral? Do they look in the open casket? Like is, you know, am I going to traumatize them or is that closure? How does a parent answer them? those questions? Well, I think the correct answer always is it depends, right? But what it depends on is what the kid wants. Parents, we forget as parents that we can ask our child, we can offer them choices. Hey, we're going to go to the hospital as a family. You have a few choices. You could sit in the car with your brother. You could come into the waiting room. You could come into the hospital room and stay farther away. If you want to go up to grandma and talk to her, you can. I remember when my grandpa was dying um, and my grandma saying, why don't you say your last words to him? And all of a sudden it was this pressure as like a 20 year old, like, oh my gosh, I got to get it right, right now. This is it. You know what I'm like? Okay, do it right. Everybody's listening. When really me and my grandpa had a lovely relationship and there was nothing left to say, right? And so so offering kids choices, you would be surprised that kids, A, want to be included, want to be included on their own terms, and usually know what's best for them. For each kid, that's different. Um, I also, I have this early recollection when my great grandma um, died of wanting to touch her in the casket and trying to figure out how to, I was probably six, 
how to get up there when no one else was, because I just wanted to know what it felt like, which is exactly where a six-year-old should be, right? But again, if someone would have given me the opportunity to go up and interact with the body, that could have been the closure that I needed because each kid is different and just offering them choices. Yeah. And also think about parents, literally, if you were in that situation and your six-year-old wanted to go up to the casket and touch (laughs) great grandma, most parents would be like, what is wrong with my six-year-old? What are they crazy? And just to remember as a parent, Again, there's so many things that we feel like we're comfortable or uncomfortable with, or we know to be socially or not socially acceptable. And to let our kids exist outside of those Mm -hmm. paradigms is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, also, Allison, I think a huge thing is kids need the space to continue to connect with someone they, that has died. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, You know, lots of parents will say, well, I heard them talking to their sibling who died or, and, and it really bothers them, but to a child, that's a huge deal to continue that relationship, right? Like it maybe doesn't feel as hard as of a stop or who made the rules that you can't talk to your brother who died. Right. So, so oftentimes in play therapy, I'll make a box with kids and say, Hey, anything you want your brother to see, put it in here, write them letters, put it in here, but it, it allows this continued connection, um, that kids need. So we're coming up to Father's Day. This will be posted before Father's Day. And I remember my first year working in a nursery school and one of the little kids at the at the preschool had lost his father. And we were doing all the Father's Day gifts. And I remember thinking, oh, yikes. Oh, you know, I need to be sensitive to the fact that not everybody's going home to a daddy and some people lost a daddy this year. And what do we do around these Father's Day gifts? And some schools have said like, oh no, we're not going to do gifts anymore because we need to like protect the kids, you know. And instead we didn't handle it that way. We we said you can make a gift or not make a gift, but we, whatever you make, we're, we'll, we'll send it to whatever address you want, whether that's at home under daddy's side of the bed or whether that's in a mailbox is addressed to heaven or whatever their own personal delivery address might be. And and those kids do want to continue. Well, that child, I'm saying, I mostly to your point, want to continue relating in that way, in a child appropriate way. Well, because he didn't not have a father. Right. Yeah. Right. His, his father's physical being is no longer here. And depending on what that family believes, right? Like, I mean, I teach my kids there's a heaven that, that your soul goes to. So why wouldn't you want to send a letter? You know, Allison, what you just said reminds me, though, as adults, don't we just want to protect kids? Oh, this might hurt as if the child doesn't think about the fact that he no longer has a dad on earth. Right. Right. That's another thing about grief for adults, too. We so often hesitate. Hey, I know it's the anniversary of so-and-so's death. I just wanted you to know I'm thinking about you. We think, oh, if I say that, it will make them think and then they'll get sad. It's like, yeah, they think about it every day. Right. And the kids do, too. Right. (laughs) And I think for to that point, for all of our kids who are going through some sort of grief, the way you're describing sort of these like rituals mm-hmm. or their ability to handle it or miss or grieve someone on their own terms, just because it's not the way we mm-hmm. would do it. I think you've taught me, Nikki, a lot about the importance of ritual uh, in my own life, but then also in the life of others. And on the one hand, sometimes you can help them create it if if they haven't done that naturally. But other times, maybe you'll see something that actually is like a natural form of a child mm-hmm. creating a ritual that if you have the language for, you can pay attention to and appreciate with them. Mm-hmm. I, I really got excited. Um, Allison and kind of went down a huge rabbit hole uh, studying ritual and um, the use of ritual in um, therapy. And I have been blown away by the fact, like Shane says, kids create their own rituals. Give an example. What would that look like? So, um, well, so much of it is just us having eyes to see it. I worked with, and this was, this is a family friend actually, um, who lost um, a family member on uh, their property. Um, and one child was going, um, unknown to the other, to, um, their parents and lying down near where the accident happened and talking to the family member that they lost and just being in the presence. Um, and instead of looking at the place that it happened, this child was lying, um, on her back, looking at the stars 
And that created a sense of connectedness for her and peace instead of what often, the feelings that she often has when she looks at that physical space. Now, until I heard that come out of her mouth, what the mom was saying is, I'm really concerned. This child is spending a lot of time right by where it happened. And, and right, so the, the parent is panicked. And really, it was grounding this child, mm-hmm. creating connecting connectedness and a place for her to work through her grief appropriately. It was beautiful. Beautiful. So there's the, the the there's the that projection the the when we put our subjective interpretation on something we don't check it out with the child and so we see it as being maladaptive and it turns out it's part of the healing process it's like oh my gosh. absolutely well and it really all we're trying to do in ritual is move from one psychological state to another right and so whatever a child needs to do that is the right thing. You know, and it might be, it might be visiting a gravesite. It might have nothing to do with that. It might be um, reading a book, um, you know, that we used to read together every night. But if you watch, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. Absolutely. I, I remember you sharing the story of the boy coming into the sand tray, working through his process. Yeah, share that again. Yeah, so I, had, I worked with a young boy, gosh, probably five who had um, lost um, his father um, in a body of water. His dad had drowned. And so this little boy would come into the play therapy room. I bet this happened five, six times in a row and play out this epic underwater battle scene in my sand tray. Now I was tracking, but honestly, I don't even know if he even noticed that I was there, but he would do his thing and play it out and you could watch his body. He was not dysregulated. He was not upset. It was not re-traumatizing. And about session six or seven, he walked in. I got out all the stuff like I normally do. He said, oh, I don't need to do that anymore. And I mean, I could cry even just talking about it. He had worked out whatever it was he needed to work out just with me simply as a witness. It was absolutely incredible. Wow. You know, Allison, one other thing I think as adults in kids' lives that we forget about trauma and grief is that kids need truth. They need an age appropriate version of truth. And I don't think parents intentionally lie to their kids, but um, in that desire to protect, we say things like, well, the dog passed away and kids are sitting there thinking, what the heck does that even mean? Or we lost grandma, like, wait, you can lose people? Like, (laughs) I swear I just saw her in that box. What do you mean she's lost? Or, or we, we try too hard to shelter them from the hard parts of truth. You know, if, if someone um, dies by suicide, um, that's a hard thing, right? Kids can handle age-appropriate versions of the truth. And what, what seems to happen is if we don't give that to children, it causes trust issues. And they think, why, why did these people not tell me the truth? Um, or where do I go when things get hard if I can't trust the people closest to me? Yeah, the yeah. trauma of discovering you've been lied to is harder than the trauma of whatever the the covering up was supposed to be. And if you lied about that, then did you lie about me being lovable and me being important? Right. And what other truths don't I know? And uh, it just is one of those world order pieces that crumbles down. And, and so when I try to say to parents, your children can understand that you have cancer and that you don't know if it's going to go away. And they're like, oh, uh, oh, I hope they're all listening to this podcast because there is a lot of cleaning up life in order to protect kids that mm-hmm. just backfires in just the worst ways. Isn't that interesting too, how the instinct is, oh no, that could be bad for them to hear or, oh no, that might be too much. And even I have two examples. Uh, one is someone who's a retiree who their spouse is not doing great mm-hmm. health wise. And even for their adult children, nonetheless, their grandchildren, they're sort of hiding the fact that maybe health stuff isn't great right now. And I I think it's coming from a place of like, I don't want them to be burdened with whatever, but imagine the day where something does happen. And so they have to tell them. And then what they end up telling them is, yeah, it's been happening for a few years now. 
and being in that situation and being like, why didn't you tell me? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I think it creates crisis of value and meaning too. And it's like, wait, the version that I got was so like, yeah, all fuzzy, warm, cuddly. But then like when this real hard thing happens yeah. in life, I don't know how to deal with that because everybody has protected me from the real yeah. hard. And you can, parts. you can understand and even respect the instinct that says, Oh, I don't want to bother them. Oh, I don't want to burden. Oh, I don't want to put that on their shoulders. Oh, they, have, they already have so much going on. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the other example I have is I just talked to a parent who, uh, a teenager in their family just had an unexpected pregnancy. And so they're obviously going to need to talk to their own children about, you know, the cousin who <laughs> is now pregnant in their teenage years. And all of the fears were, if I tell them, what if they think that like, that's an okay thing to do? Mm-hmm. If I tell them, will they also want to do that when they're a teenager? Yeah. Cause you just know, if you give kids sex education, they're going to go out and start sleeping around. I mean, research shows it's exactly the opposite that when our kids get exactly. education, they make better choices. Exactly. And the thing that is so, I think, tricky for parents is we don't often question our instincts You know, (laughs) when, when our first instinctual response happens, we're not very, uh, inept at questioning. Is that, is that really how I want to handle this? Is that a, is that a great narrative for this situation? Is there anything I want to say objection, your honor, (laughs) you know, to the statement that just crossed my mind. And instead we just, it's our instinct. So we do it. And right. it's funny because how often do we also tell parents, trust your inst- instincts. Right. So there's this, like, there's sort of this dichotomy between on the one hand, you know, your kids, you're attuned to them. You do have to, in some sense, trust your instincts for them. And on the other hand, some of these things, like we're talking about, maybe these bigger topics that I don't know, Allison, maybe you would say, my thought is the more likely a topic is to dysregulate me as a parent, the more likely I need to challenge or question the instincts that I have in response to it. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, Totally. And and I also think like to give parents permission to have a bad conversation, like, like they think that, oh, well, I have to talk about death. So I need to find out how do you talk to your children about death? How do you talk to them? I'm like, be authentically yourself. You're, you don't, there's no, (laughs) the the best thing you can do is whatever, go have a bad conversation. Say, say, I don't know that yet. Let's look that up together. I hope that wasn't too much. I kind of have this really high faith in children um, that you kind of can't overwhelm them because it's almost like there's a psychological protection that just makes everything else fall away. Like, my kids probably watch The Sound of Music as a bedtime video movie, whatever, like 4,000 times. And in, when they were teenagers, they had like a little, oh, remember we used to watch Sound of Music? Let's put it on again. And they're like, what's all this Hitler stuff? I don't remember that. I'm right. like, but they, they, they were too young to understand the political backdrop of that movie. So it just didn't go in. So right. I'm sure that if I ever over-informed my kids, it just didn't stick. Like I kind of just... Decided I'll wait till the eyes glaze over or they go, oh, mom, you're talking too much and walk away. But, but I never worried about oversharing. I just, yeah, give a go, give a go. These are conversations we're not going to have once. We're going to have them many times. That's it. Yes. I mean, if we're doing it right as parents, it's not a one-time conversation ever. So there's all kinds of room for error if you're doing it multiple times, right? And all the grace in the world to us when we screw up. And I'm just thinking about my daughter. She uh, wanted a hedgehog forever. Allison forever and ever. I mean, she was four. So a very long time, like at least three months, she wanted a hedgehog. <laughs> so I bought it for her, which they are so pricey. We'll talk about that later. I bought it for her and she loved it. And then one day as I walked past this cage, I thought, wow, Hedgie sure looks different today. And he was dead. And me as a trained play therapist who, who thinks that I have some things to say to parents, I looked at my husband like, get over here, get over here now. And he says, do we tell her? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> like, what are we, we're not going to tell her it's dead. And, and, you know, after we worked up the courage and, and told her the way she handled it was beautiful. Right. And What'd then she I do? Thought, well, she, you know, she, she asked if she could touch it and it was 
yeah, it was not like it normally is. And so she touched it. She asked if she could bury it. We live in Iowa. So in January, you cannot bury anything. The ground is frozen. So we came up with a backup plan. And here's the most profound thing, Allison. Every part of me wanted to be like, your hedgehog died and I'll buy you another one. I'm not even kidding. That's the two things I wanted to say. It hurts. I'll fix it by buying another one. And, and I waited. I resisted that only because I've read you shouldn't do that. <laughs> And about a week later, I said, hey, you know, did you want to get another hedgehog someday? And she said, no, I didn't really take very good care of it. She's like, I think we're just too busy. Oh, my. So and how many parents have said the hedgehog died? I'm going to go to the pet store before she comes home from school. I'm going to try to get one that matches the exact color. From another $350 on a pet that's tiny. Oh my goodness. Well, this is why I always think it's a good idea to start. If we're going to teach the, the reality is you are going to encounter death in your life. I don't know how close it's going to be when it first comes, but wouldn't it be better to practice on a goldfish, a guppy, a hedgehog, work your way up to the family dog before the first encounter is a, a parent or a grandparent or a, a, an attachment figure that's so close, you know, so that you learn that, that you do grieve and you, but that to your point, we are resilient. We can keep the good memories and move on. Uh, I think that's important to have our kids experience. Back in the day when we were on the farm, you saw animals getting slaughtered. You, you know, you grandma was laid out on the dining room table when she, there was no hospitals. We didn't hide death from kids. We're really very sanitized around it now. Well, and we, you know, it used to be more sacred and a celebrated passage, right? Much like birth, but but now we've moved it to private, um, unseen, and I think that makes it scarier. Yes, because in, you know, Western society and culture, death is something we want to put as far out on the side of our blinders as we possibly can. We don't want to think about mm -hmm. it. We don't want to know about it. And yeah, to your point, Allison, unless there's animals in our lives or we're a part of this process, even for like, we both garden, even that process of spring and then winter with our plants uh a quick story allison because i know you've mentioned along the way how like giving children opportunities to make decisions along the way multiple times not just once how important that is uh like nikki just said we're in iowa so like for some people in iowa hunting is a big deal i got to take my daughter on her first hunt last year when she was six she ended up being able to shoot a deer but what we did was like early on in the spring. Do you want to hunt this year? Yes. Okay. If you do, then there's some work we got to do along the way because I'm not going to take you hunting unless I know you can mercifully like accurately shoot an animal. Well, so all summer she practiced, she practiced, she practiced. The first time we actually went and shot her gun, we went and got ice cream and she couldn't finish it because she had to poop so bad because she was so nervous about getting <laughs> a gun. So we actually stopped eating ice cream, <laughs> threw it away, drove her home so she could poop. Then we went and shot her gun. And even just that one memory of that has served me so many times, Allison. We say, even though you're nervous, you can still do it. And I'll, I'll, rec I'll recall that one memory. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the time we went to shoot your gun and how nervous you were, but you did it anyways? You remember that? And she goes, oh, yeah. And then she'll just go do whatever mm -hmm. she was nervous to do. Mm -hmm. So long story short. All summer, I'm giving her the choice. I'm telling her, you don't have to. You don't have to. If you want to, I'd love to do it with you. You don't have to. So we actually, the day we go out and she's going to actually be able to shoot one, again, I'm telling her, at any moment, you can tell me you just don't want to do this and we won't. Mm -hmm. If she just says she's scared or doesn't want to fail, eh, we're going to have a different conversation. But at any moment, you can pull out of this. She actually does get a chance. She makes a great shot. She kills a deer. It's just down immediately. So we celebrate and actually I like squeezed her and like hugged her and was like yelling. And she was like, dad, you're, you're overreacting. <laughs> so then I'm like, okay, more decisions here. We have to go, you know, field dressed the deer uh, because we have to take care of it. Well, now, like we just have an opportunity to have an animal serve our family well, and we have to take care of this meat in the correct way. We have to honor this animal teaching values the whole, the whole time way. So then I'm like, you know, maybe you don't want to do this because I talked to a lot of adults who are like, I could never. So as we approach, I'm like, do you want to touch it? She, oh, yeah. Do you want to take a picture with it? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, now I need to field dress it. Do you want to help me? Or do you want to go sit in the truck? Oh, I want to help. 
So while we're doing it, right, she's like, look, dad, there's mosquitoes and they're going inside of its body to take the, <laughs> just the whole thing. And all along the way, I was given a permission to not do it and to not do it and to not do it. And even for that example, like the amount of times that we just the other day had friends over and we got to give them jerky from the deer. And they all said to my daughter, Hey, thank you for the jerky. And just how cool, like the values, but also checking in along the way. Cause I know Allison, you've talked choices. about that a lot. Oh, I, you know, if, for, if you come from a, a, a hunting community, you know, exactly what Shane is talking about for those people. They're like, what? A kid got a gun. <laughs> this, I know it's so foreign for some people. And I was one of those people for years until I met somebody who really walked me through. And I thought you're, you're act. I mean, you are actually way more environmentally friendly. You have higher values. You care for the animal. You give back. There's a ceremony with, you know, um, uh, rosemary that, that that honors the life that's going to feed your children. And look at, you don't think that when we go pick up a pack of pork chops from the grocery store, kids don't even know where it came from. That animal suffered in, in, in industrial, right. um, agricultural, you know, so... Yes. A real, to your point, the, 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 the beauty of the cycle of life and how we fit into the system. And there's a reverence and a respect. And, um, so I think that's a beautiful story, but I get that some people are going to just be lost on that point, but, <laughs> but I get it. And I think it's beautiful. Don't. And if you're, if you're upset, don't blame Allison. Just blame me. Don't blame Allison. <laughs> Uh, I, one of the things that I that I wanted to make bring into the conversation, besides the the play therapy and 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 some of these other things, was like the use of books, bibliotherapy mm-hmm. as as a way of also working with kids around this too. And wondered if you, I mean, I remember I'll just toss my name and I'll put these in the show notes. When I grew up, we had this book called I think it was by Judith Fiorst, and it was called The Ten Good Things About Barney, and it was about the death of a dog, and then everyone was sort of having this little funeral for this dog and saying the ten good things about the family dog. Have you got books that you like that you recommend that you feel have sort of a therapeutic kind of a undertone to them that that I can put in the show notes for parents? Because I, I I think sometimes when we're nervous about talking, books are like a good jumping off place. You know, so much of what um, our family has done has gone off of our, our value system, right? Um, I actually have in my my play therapy room tons of different um, religious beliefs, different books. The one's called um, Grandpa Stones for Grandpa, and it honors um, the Jewish tradition of throwing stones um, like on the casket during burial. Um, but I think like what's most important is that you find stories that honor your value system. So we got, I think it was called doggy heaven um, for my daughter when her hedgehog died that just talked about, um, you know, what actually the physicality of what happens to a body um, when uh, something that's living dies. Um, So that was really helpful in our family. We use stories from the Bible because that would be our value system. But again, I think finding what specifically um, honors your family's value system is super important. Yeah. So on that note, two books that have been really helpful in my house. One is, which you actually told me about Nikki, you've got dragons, such a good book because uh, we all know, cause we've talked and read and thought and trained on this. What, when there's fear or things that are scary or difficult in life, the most helpful response the most helpful approach to things that are scary is resilience, courage, not safety. So even for parents, when we think, oh my gosh, my you know child is experiencing this, or there's this moment, or they're anxious or whatever. So we think, let's just make them safe. Mm-hmm. Safety is a facade. <laughs> that danger is always coming for us. Somehow, some way it's coming. And the best way we can help ourselves and our children is to make them resilient in small ways so that they can be resilient in big ways Mm -hmm. later on. And You've Got Dragons is a great book for that. Um, And then the other one, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia series. And one of the things he is recorded to have said is something like this. I'm going to paraphrase this, but he said, uh, one of the beautiful things about writing stories for children is that uh, you can expose them to the fact that dragons exist, 
which they already know. But in children's stories, you can teach them that someone is capable of defeating the dragon. So we have like a children's version of Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And what's cool about it is because the kids play such an integral role in mm-hmm. fighting, in that case, like the witch, uh, all of my kids, right? He even uses a language of their longing for adventure. So they go into the closet and then they get to like be a part of the adventure. And so even just that, like we've talked so many times about like, which one of the gifts would you want? And which one of the weapons would you want to have? And like, if that was your brother getting like tricked with the chocolate, what would you do to try and say, you know, and we, we just like talk so many values through books like that. So those are two specific ones, but yeah, to your point, Nikki, any book where you're like, man, I could just hammer my family values with this book. (laughs) Those are such good options. I don't even know if families really think about the transfer of values as a conscious thing. And you've brought it up so many times in this conversation that I, I hope you guys uh, feel good about co-writing together. Cause I'm going to put in a request that you write that book. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> report back to me. Well, I, my, my grandmother on my dad's side was a children's librarian So we got so many books when we were kids. And I would say between children's books and my my mom playing the folk songs of the 60s with all the civil rights stuff, I really believe those two things did shape, did shape my value system. Absolutely shape my value system. Yeah. Stories and metaphor is how we have taught generations for all eternity, right? They they work because they displace... um, the experience just slightly away from us where we can, you know, practice new ways of thinking, feeling, behaving. That's why metaphors and stories are so powerful. Yeah. And we use, and you, we, I say we, but when Terry teaches Adlerian play therapy, which is different from other forms of play therapy, by the way, folks, please look for an Adlerian play therapist in a neighborhood near you. Um, <laughs> or go get training at LEPT. I'll put that in the show notes too. Um, but there's a lot of use of, of metaphor because you don't, you're, you're not being combative or confrontive with a child, um, but through symbolism and story and, and play, which is, is part of it, uh, they're exercising options, thinking, creating new opportunities for thinking. Which is so helpful. And Alice and I, so many times when I'm talking to people, they, how would I phrase this? For their own personal story and their own personal narrative, they cannot allow themselves to see other people as like having evil intentions or that maybe they're worthy of some compassion or kindness, Mm -hmm. or even that their past version of themselves is worthy of kindness or compassion. And until I can say, Hey, let's put this in a different context. And then I give them a sort of a parable almost of a different person in a different place with a slightly different setting. And I say, what would you feel towards that person I just told you about? And they say, Oh, I would feel sad. I would feel like there's justice that they deserve. I would feel like I want to just hug them and hold them and tell them it's going to be okay. And then I get to say, and that is you and your story. Why can't you do it for yourself? And so even for us in our own narratives, in our own minds, in our own stories, having these metaphors or parables or other different sort of analogies for what we're experiencing is so important. And story is such a big part of that. The human brain, the, the transfer of knowledge around the fire, right? This, the storytelling elders passing things on. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, so I want to just give you guys an opportunity to, to shamelessly promote yourselves. How, how to, <laughs> any, any closing words and how can people find you? And I'll make sure that I've got whatever uh, URLs in the, uh, in the show notes for people. I'll do closing words. You can self-promote. Thank you. Okay. Um, closing words. Parents, the more you connect with your kids, the more room you have for error, right? Mm -hmm. So just keep playing with them. Just keep connecting. Just keep making deposits in that positive energy bank, the positive memory bank, and keep talking. Keep trying. Make mistakes. Acknowledge to them that you've made mistakes and keep going. You you have so much room for error with that alone. It's incredible how much we can mess up if our child feels connected to us. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, so if you want to find us, we are Preparing Parents. So preparingparents.com. We have uh, courses for parents on all sorts of topics from grief 
to sex talk, to video games, to anxiety. And if you want to find us on social, it's preparing parents courses on, I think Facebook and Instagram is where we're most active. So yeah, anywhere you want to find us there is great. And we'd love to hear from you too. If you reach out or have questions or anything like that, we'd be happy to hear from you. So thank you, Allison. We appreciate it. This has been so fun, Allison. You're, you're a wealth of knowledge and I'm so glad that you are doing what you're doing um, for the world. I, I love your approach. I love how human you make it. So, so um, parents are disarmed from worrying. They got to be all that. You really give them permission to just be humble humans. You know, we're all stumbling along together. And so that's, that's beautiful. I'll put this all up in the show notes. We will have you back and we will have a topic that <laughs> keeps saying, how did I pick the two happiest people on the planet and give them the most depressing topic of grief? But <laughs> right. we, we will come back with a happier topic soon. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Allison. All right. Thanks guys. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast, so thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.